This is the Accounting Influencers Podcast with Rob Brown and Martin Bissett. With Rob Brown and Martin Bissett. Welcome to the Accounting Influencers Podcast. I'm Rob Brown. This is Martin Bissett. We are your hosts for the show. Rapidly growing. Martin, we're going stratospheric on the numbers. Give us an update. Unique listeners, which is one of the major things we look at to see which individuals are listening and coming back time after time, has just passed 22,000 unique listeners. Now, each of those are listening to four or five or more episodes on average each. So first of all, thank you. But of course, that means now that there's been uh, over 120-odd thousand downloads just in the last six months alone. You guys keep wanting to hear more. We are delighted to provide more. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Yes, and coming up on this week's show, we're going to kick off with the news. And Martin, we looked at a big play in the mergers and acquisitions space for accounting firms. Have we created a behemoth? Mm. Not often that you find a merger that creates a billion pound firm that isn't in the top four, but we've got one here. We look in the news here, not just at the merger and what size of firm it creates, but its impact and the sort of the aftershocks and uh, what happens to you and your firm when other firms in your area get this big? What happens to your firm when firms of this size start coming after your clients? What is the best way to continue to grow and retain clients when you've got firms of that size knocking on their door? And after that, I interview Professor Anton Lewis. This is an English guy. He's based in the US and he's an expert on black accountants and critical race theory. Really fascinating discussion, not the normal kind of discussion you'd have on accounting influencers, but as the DEI agenda comes higher, diversity, equity, inclusion, we are right to talk about topics like this. What are blacks doing in accounting? What are women doing in accounting? What are the younger generation doing in accounting? And Dr. Anton Lewis has some amazing insights in the first of one or two interviews where we unpack a lot of this and critical race theory and all the stuff playing out in society. What does that mean for professional firms? And here's what works. We hit coaching for accountants. Yeah, there's so many firms who think about the possibility of maybe doing something one day, perhaps, I never do. However, there is a smaller number of firms who decide that perhaps they don't know everything about growing a firm and they need some outside help. Unfortunately, they also don't know much about how to pick a great coach. What criteria should I use? Should they have track record? How many years in, in accounting should they have? What we do, guys, and here's what works, is we break this down for you to a very specific five-point plan on how to tell a great advisor from a poor advisor. And we finalized the show with an interview with Christine Nicholson. She's a, an award-winning mentor for accountants and their clients. She's an expert in exit planning, succession planning, both for accounting firms and the aging population of accounting firm owners, but also the business owners. And she talked about the four Ds, uh, death and divorce and disability. There's one more, just really insightful things to think about because everybody's got an exit of business at some point. In some way, we all leave, put the pieces back into the box, the game ends, you can do it on your terms or somebody else's terms. So if you're an accounting practitioner, firm owner, you need to take a note of that. And also bringing in those services for your clients and helping them make those decisions, hopefully ahead of time so they don't have those decisions made for them. Check out the interview with Christine Nicholson. So Martin, that is the show for this week. We are really grateful to our guests and our sponsors, Iris, Ignition, Dext, Accountex, and Advanced Track Outsourcing. And Martin, what advice would you give finally to the accountants listening with regard to CPE? It's good to stay ahead of things and stay informed, isn't it? 
Absolutely. So for those of our friends in North America, which is one of our two biggest markets for this podcast, this podcast is CPE accredited. How? Through Earmark CPE. Go to earmarkcpe.com, get the app, check out the Accounting Influencers podcast, and you'll find this podcast in the form of, you've guessed it, a CPE course which when you complete, they will email you a certificate of completion immediately, which counts towards your CPE points total. So that's earmarkcpe.com. Brilliant. And you, UK practitioners in other countries, that's accredited throughout the world through NASBRA, I think it is. And you can get your CPD, Continued Professional Development, there. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the show. Let's get started. And thank you to our special sponsors, Iris Software. Martin, you saw a great video just recently from Iris, didn't you? Yeah, well, I think people don't understand about Iris is they were ahead of the game for MTD phase one because they were the first software vendor to be listed as approved by the HMRC for MTD filing. And guess what? They're fully prepared for the next. So they've got an MTD webinar on demand that you can catch up with at any time. Rob, where do they go to to see this? It's iris.co.uk forward slash MTD webinar. That stands for making tax digital for our international listeners. And there's some great stuff there that you need to know to guide you through the whole Making Tax Digital initiative. So iris.co.uk forward slash MTD webinar. Right, Martin? That's right. So wherever you are in your journey, Iris know that they have the knowledge and tools to help you in the next steps. That's iris.co.uk forward slash MTD webinar. And we come to our new section of the Accounting Influencers Podcast, when we invite Martin Bissett to cast his eye over what's happening in the accounting fintech world. And Martin, when we talk about accounting and accounting firms, you're often talking about how wide and diverse this is from the big four down. But there are some big giants out there, aren't there? Oh, absolutely. I mean, Rob, did you ever hear the one about the $1.4 billion firm that wasn't in the big four? Wow, I can't imagine. No great punchline for that, except to say that we often sit on this show, whether it's in the news item or, or another section of the show, and warn practitioners who are listening of big tech resources, their ability to influence how their the accounting firm's clients think, the ability to take that business away, the ability to make sure that the accountant is under pressure from a price point of view. The ability to change the rules of the game, Martin. Yeah, that's right. They, they, they change that. And what we don't do is we don't warn the practitioners of the same threat from other practices. But here's the news. I, I saw a headline which hardly grabbed me, but it was in Accounting Today, and it said BKD adds bankers assurance. And I thought, well, that'll be interesting. Sarcasm there, listeners, by the way, I didn't mean that. And then I got to read it, and it actually is fascinating because of its impact. So check this out. It's by Michael Cohen, the article, and it reads as, as follows. BKD, CPAs and advisors, we love our acronym, don't we? Which is a top 20 firm based in Springfield, Missouri, is merging in Bankers Assurance LLC, a regulatory compliance firm in Little Rock, Arkansas. You're riveted so far? Yeah, I thought so. But watch out for this, okay? This is happening as BKD prepares for its mega merger, remember that word, we're coming back to it, with another top 20 firm, Dixon Hughes Goodman. Okay, now then it talked about Bankers Assurance and, and doesn't matter. But here's the bit. When its merger with DHG is finalized in the second quarter of the year, so as you're listening to this in about a month's time, BKD and DHG is forecasting the combined revenue of their new firm as a result of their mega merger to be $1.4 billion per year. Now, 
Mrs. and Mr. Practitioner, think about that. A non-tech firm, a non-private uh, equity-backed tech firm, a non-big four, a previously top 20 firm has merged with another top 20 firm to create a $1. billion firm. Now think about the clients they service. That's not all blue chip mega companies. A lot of that is going to be the higher end, the grade A's and B's that you look after. A lot of that is going to be compliance with frills, a little bit of advisory, strategic planning, forecasting, cash flows, management information, that sort of thing. That's what that's going to be, $1.4 billion of it. Now, of course, there will be corporate finance in there and goodness knows what else. But the point being is that here's a firm now that has the kind of power that you've been warned about with regard to big tech and top four. So should you be worried? Well, no. But it's again, as always, it's the pattern I want you to look at. Is this the first of such a thing called a mega merger? Does this start a domino effect of other mega mergers? Now that other top 20, top 30 firms realize, oh, they just jumped the queue. We're going to have to speed up. Who can we merge with? And what's the impact of that? Well, there are two impacts of that, one bad, one good. Impact number one is that all these mega mergers lead to a hell of a lot of resource to educate your clients instead of you doing it for them. And, let, and, and approach your clients rather than you doing it. That's the bad thing. The good thing is that as within any merger or M&A scenario, some clients don't like their new home and they want to leave home and they want to join a new home that looks a lot like their old home, which is a lot cuddlier and warmer, and that's you. So the question becomes, are you ready to have your clients swayed away from you? Question number one, rhetorical. Question number two, also rhetorical. Are you ready to welcome or proactively attract the clients who don't fit into these new corporate cultures and corporate ways and want to go back to the sort of relationship they had previously? Because if you're not ready for number one, then you're going to experience client loss that you weren't forecasting. And if you're not ready for scenario two to attract the ones that aren't happy in these kinds of mega mergers, they're going to your competition. So either way, your practice needs to be on the ball educating via marketing on exactly what you do for your clients, how you hold their hands, how you cuddle them, how you take them to where they need to be. Because this, I suspect, Rob, isn't the first. No, and what struck me about this, Martin, is you think that some firms are too big to merge, but nobody is off limits outside the top four now. And I'm sure the top four are absorbing a lot of the smaller firms because they just run like a network or association, really. But these firms are massive and yes, the big American firms, probably bigger than anything else outside the top four in the UK, for sure. Nobody's too big to merge. If they can get the lawyers around the table and broker a deal where they think that this is acceptable and we can bring these two disparate cultures together on all these different offices together and keep all the clients happy and all the staff happy, if they think that is possible, then just about anything is possible. Yeah. I mean, this has been specifically for you, uh, US listeners, although the message is for both, uh, you know, for, for any listener. Let's bring it to the UK market. What if we had Grant Thornton and BDO and more global all merged together? As unlikely as that is, think of the size of firm that would create. That would be the number five immediately, straight away. Uh, and that would create a mega, mega firm. And that would have an impact on those of our listeners who have... I don't know, five grand fees upwards, really, anywhere from there. That's who that impacts. Final thought, Martin, on this. Do you think the people in the big four will be looking over the shoulder at this? Mm, not yet. No, no, I don't, I don't think so. What I do think needs to be the case, we, we, you know, our audience is far and wide, Rob, but nevertheless, 
ultimately we're talking to the independent practitioner. That's who we're talking to. And every week, it seems, we have a news item that suggests a further encroachment on their turf and on their territory and on their traditional heartland of, of uh, fees and client work. And so we are imploring those listeners in this news item to be aware of these things and to make sure that you are as close as you possibly can be to your clients, that you are indispensable to them, because that's the best way of A, insuring, B, getting referrals from, and C, cross-selling to those clients going forward. And there you have the news from the Accounting Influencers Podcast, keeping you informed, keeping you relevant, and keeping you influential. Improve your practice while decreasing how hard you work to make your firm really fly. Really fly. The Accounting Influencers Podcast with Rob Brown and Martin Bissett. Welcome to our special guest interview for today. And I have with me the wonderful professor and doctor and academia legend himself, Anton Lewis. Hello, sir. Hello. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here, Rob. Thank you very much for having me on your podcast. Now, how does one address somebody like you? You have so many qualifications and, and letters after your name, Anton. How do we address you? Anton is is, is fine. How uh, humble I, you are. <laughs> no, no, I make the students call me professor. And uh, I'm not one uh, to be particularly big on all these kind of doctors or professors. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be a little bit more humble about things, I, I think. We love that. Now, for people that haven't come across you, just give us a little flavor of your background and your areas of passion. Well, Rob, as you might have heard from my accent, although I reside at Valparaiso University, Indiana, in the United States, I'm actually, I'm a Yorkshire lad at heart. I'm originally from Halifax in West Yorkshire, and by hook and by crook, uh, I've ended up in the United States with, with my beautiful wife. I'm an accounting professor in uh, the state of uh, Indiana, and my research area is the area of race and accounting, asking a simple question both in Britain and the United States, why don't we see in Britain more black British accountants? And in America, why don't we see more African-American accountants? And that's really my my bag, so to speak. It's a fascinating topic and diversity comes up a lot now. It's more on people's agenda. We hear critical risk theory and all kinds of things. So we're going to dive this into this with you as an expert. So let's start off with that question. Why do we have so few black accountants? Give us some statistics and context, Anton. Uh, to give you some statistics, at least here uh, in the uh, United States, the AICPA, the American Institute of Certified Public Accountants, uh, they, in their 2019 trends report, basically said that of the many CPAs in the United States, around 2% were African-American and 1% are partners. Now, if we go all the way back to something like 1997, there is an academic called Professor Teresa Hammond who wrote a, a really seminal book about the history of African-American accounting, uh, the white-collar profession. She cited data in that 2002 book relating to uh, 1997, and the figures for qualified African-American CPAs was less than 1%. I've given you those two comparisons to, to, to highlight. Between that time, we just haven't had the level of progress that we should. And uh, to put it in within uh, the context of the United Kingdom, we can't get that data. That data doesn't actually exist wholesale in the United Kingdom. We don't actually measure those metrics. The best we can get is circumstantial. You surprise me because there is rhetoric at least, but certainly some statistics on, say, football managers that are black and 
members of boardrooms that are female and possibly black too. So this whole diversity inclusion thing is on the agenda. I'm surprised we haven't got stats for black accountants in the UK. Maybe the, the US is more woke than we are, might we say? Well, in some ways, yes. But part of the problem around this in the United Kingdom and to an extent in the United States traditionally has been the very concept of diversity. If you really step aside from them and think, what do we mean by diversity? Diversity actually encapsulates many different areas. So are we talking about, as we might say uh, in Britain to use the black and minority ethnic, BME? Are we talking in uh, the United Kingdom about those who are Asian? Are we talking about gender, about women? Are we talking about those from a class background? I could go on, you know, members of our LGBTQ plus community. And because you can, in some ways, be very successful, and, and certain accountancy firms have been very successful in previous years in reporting diversity metrics that have looked great. It's just been metrics that have reported many more women going up and through the accounting arena than have been Black, British or African-Americans who are either men or women. And we haven't separated out that data. And it's allowed that data to be hidden. And with uh, Black Lives Matter and, and with the unfortunate passing of Mr. George Floyd, there have been demands for actual clarification on that data. And that's where we begin to see a lot of accountancy firms not report that, certainly that I can see in the United Kingdom. Funnily enough, there is one slight separation to that. Well, well, maybe two. Over the last few years, from say maybe 2015, 2016, we've had some pay gap reporting that has reported some of this. But again, a lot of the pay gap reporting is around this notion of BAME, Black and Minority Ethnic, or BME, as I've just defined it, which, I mean, that could easily include a white Croatian, which would be uh, very different from, say, a Black British uh, Afro-Caribbean heritage individual with differing experiences. And when we look at accounting as a profession, there's that mantra of stale, white, pale, old, baby boomers, white, middle-aged, privileged men ruling the roost, ruling the accounting profession. It's definitely been a man's game, an older man's game, maybe a white man's game. It sounds nonsense, but it's the case, isn't it? Obviously, we've got the stats to prove it. Well, I'm afraid, I'm afraid it's true. Your eyes do not deceive you. The real question is why? We are not new to this game of trying to work out why we have such low representation, whether it be in the United Kingdom or the United States. If you take, again, the AICPA, I believe there's data relating to 1969, a report off the back of lots of action within the civil rights movement, a statement produced by the IICPA that said, we will look to make sure that there is proportional representation of African-Americans in our accounting profession. And decades and decades later, we've had no movement. The real question is why? Why does that exist? And there are a multitude of suggestions as to why that's the case, but no firm, real research answers to that particular point. Is the simple answer, Anton, that there is racism in the accounting profession? It's hard not to escape that. And that's a bitter pill, really, Rob, for the profession that we love. But let me put this to you. If we accept that in the United Kingdom, we've had actions such as the Windrush scandal, 
We have had Black Lives Matter movements in the United States. We've had the same Black Lives Matter movement. We've had the passing of Mr. George Floyd. We have had multiple shootings within our society. We live in racialized societies. Our institutions within accounting exist in that society. So really, Rob, one of two things has happened. Either accounting has got it right. We have got this right. And a lot of the stuff around this is a bit of a mistake. And if that's the case, we should tell everybody we've got the solution. If we're not right, and we don't have the solution, then we need to look at cleaning our own house out. Nobody else can do this for us. We have to admit, first of all, that institutionalized racism, like society, exists within our walls. And then we have to set about dealing with this blight, if you will, in a systemic, systematic kind of way. I wonder if accounting as a profession is isolated. I'm a committed Christian. This talk about uh, racism in church, white privilege in church, the majority of leaders in church are male and white. There must be other professions where this is happening also, or or is accounting an isolated? Not at all, not at all. And as I stated earlier, we have to deal with our own patch. It's our house. It is our responsibility to deal with this. But within the house of the law, Just look around to see the number of, again, to use that term, black and minority ethnic. It's a terrible term, by the way. I don't like using it, but it's one that we know of. How many South Asian judges do you see? How many from black African, African Caribbean heritage? We could go on. You actually don't see them. And you actually don't see QCs, Queen's Councils uh, in the UK. And what's interesting, the same paucity of professions is seen across the Atlantic in kind of strangely proportional numbers in the United States, we don't see anywhere near enough attorneys. Now, we see more than we have in accounting, but not much more. Why? It's the same thing in engineering. It's the same thing in the tech industry. Now, the tech industry is really interesting because it sells itself on its meritocratic credentials. It sells itself on its idea that they're they're more woke, to use the term that you have used, Rob. Apart from the fact that we've just had a Me Too movement in Silicon Valley in the United States that basically says, you know, women are actually marginalized. We really haven't even got to grips the lack of racial representation, read people of color in tech in the United States. So CRT comes to the forefront of this conversation, Anton. There'll be listeners that are not familiar with the phrase, the term. So can you uh, talk to us like we're five-year-olds in a lovely way (laughs) and explain what CRT is all about and what it's doing in a field like accounting? Yes, critical race theory is, uh, is, is the term. Critical race theory basically says one simple thing. It kind of says, let's be honest. Let's say that race really does matter in our society and has done for a very long time. Within the United States, we can draw that way of thinking right back to the reality of slavery occurring at the foundation of the country. Within the United Kingdom, we can draw back right through to the reality that much of Britain's wealth was founded on slavery as well. With the slave plantations in the British West Indies, we've seen a lot of the Black Lives Matter movement rip monuments to many uh, esteemed 18th century slavery pioneers who have uh, profited from this. Critical race theory basically states that hasn't gone away. It's in our society and it's in our institutions. Let's not pretend it doesn't exist when it does, because it is it is affecting the life chances of people of color in both lands. That's really what it says at base. It doesn't say, and I need to be really clear about this because there's been a lot of argument against critical race theory. It doesn't say we hate white people. 
It doesn't say this is a new racism where we accuse people who had nothing to do with the slave trade of being racist in the past and bringing it today in a really unfair manner. It doesn't say those things. If CRT says anything, Rob, it says if we're going to accept that race has and continues to play a central role in our society, we need to talk about it. We need to do what we're doing here. So so for any of your listeners out there, the very fact that they're listening to uh, your podcast on this particular subject is a step forward in the CRT way of thinking and way of being. So is CRT dangerous? Is it divisive? Does it help? Only in the way that if we are looking to make true progress, be it technologically, be it socially, we have to engage in danger. Because danger is really challenged to the status quo. And we're already adamant that we want the status quo to change, or at least most of us do. And in that regard, you have to have tools that are theoretical that will push us into uncomfortable situations. But unless we're uncomfortable, one may add, are we truly learning? Are we truly changing? And the accounting profession, I don't know how introspective it is in looking at itself. We've had the recent racism stories with cricket here in the UK. You'll have been following that story with Yorkshire Cricket Club. And everybody looks on and says, well, my house is in order. There's not a problem here, but we can cast aspersions over there where it's not working right. They've been outed. So accounting has race and racism in its past. We're admitting that. It's there every day. Why should we care about it? What's the big deal? Things seem to be working fine as they are. For whom is the big question? It's about the status quo. If you are, as you've used the term, stale, pale, and male, (laughs) actually things things are fine for you. Yes. One of the, the challenging things, the threat that you mentioned earlier to CRT and other race theoretical constructs, uh, other models, they essentially pose a really interesting question that isn't just racialized, it's also actually gendered and classed. It says, if you truly believe meritocracy, I can barely say the word, (laughs) you really believe in the impartiality of our profession, and it is what our profession is predicated upon in many ways, then we will have to challenge those at the very top of our profession to step aside. And who on earth is going to do that? Why should they? You're going to have to move aside. It disrupts the status quo and there's a vested interest in keeping things as they are, which is ruled by the white privilege. Exactly. And then you become, you get into this catch-22 situation. How can you foster change without fostering change, right? And we've been quite successful up to this moment. But in some ways, again, I'll use that phrase, your eyes don't deceive you. If we are not changing at the top, if we're not changing in the middle in terms of our professional stratification within accounting, then we're not changing enough. We simply have to ask ourselves the question, how do we persuade those at the top to move aside? How do we persuade those pale and stale and male partners to move to the side to allow others of difference? And I'm not just talking here about racialized others. I'm talking about women. I'm talking about people from poorer socioeconomic backgrounds in the north of England, uh, from Appalachia in the United States. I'm talking about our brothers and sisters from the LGBTQ plus community, and we go on. A common misconception, just to go back to CRT for a moment, Rob, is that it purely looks at race. That is not correct. We will not get 
any significant change in the racial makeup in our profession unless we look at the interconnections of race with gender issues that exist there, that we don't have enough women in accounting either, that we don't have uh, enough individuals from working class backgrounds in our profession, that we don't have enough members from the LGBTQ plus community. There is an intersection of inequities that exist, that if we deal with race, we must deal with all the rest as well. We have got our work cut out. And if I'm a very comfortable partner in a law firm and you ask me to make way and yield power and privilege and wealth, then I'm uncomfortable with that, obviously, because it's a sacrifice on my part. But I'm asking myself the question, make way for whom or for what? Are there young black professionals banging on the door, wanting to come through, showing their credentials and and read females for that or Asian accountants? Is there the, the succession plan in place? I mean, that's part and parcel of it, isn't it? We're dealing with a situation that has been hundreds of years in the making. There is no quick fix. Anybody telling you that this is a quick fix is lying. Yeah. And no amount of money that we can throw. And to be fair, uh, Deloitte, as an example in the United States, uh, has been very generous in putting 75 million to some of its diversity, equity and inclusion plans specifically aimed at getting more African-Americans into the profession. And certainly around some of my writings uh, in this area, I've commended them upon this and highlighted that this is probably the thing to do, but to be careful because you know, the reality is 75 million isn't going to be enough. In uh, 2021, Fortune magazine reported that something approaching a billion dollars was promised by blue chip companies across America. Much of that hasn't been realized yet because, you know, we've not been monitoring what they're actually doing. But even so, this probably won't fix a problem that is so entrenched and deep in its hundreds of years in, in, in the making. So we have to be honest about how long this is going to take the amount of consistency and application we are going to have to put to it. And the simple fact that we do this as an article of faith, because we want a better society, we want a better profession. We believe in the rightness and the goodness of our profession to be better, to want better. That is the reason I push. It's such a great platform and a cause that you're behind. And I'd love to get you back on the show to go into it a little bit deeper because we just seem to be touching the surface. I read an article recently in Accounting Today about the National Association of Black Accountants and the strategic alliance that they forged with the diverse organization of firms. So there are movements afoot to address this. There is collaboration, there is consensus, maybe even from one side of the argument, but things are happening, aren't they? Yes, that's that's correct, uh, Rob. And let me say, I, I'm more than happy to come back and talk about this, as you might well imagine. And you're right. Uh, a lot of this can sound quite negative, and it isn't negative. I, I like to think of uh, of it as not negativity, but realistic. Let's be realistic about, about the situation. So you've mentioned in the United States, the National Association of Black Accountants. We have a nascent uh, National Association of Black Accountants as well in the United Kingdom, uh, not as um, big or as well established, but it does exist. Uh, I've had some dealings with NABA, as they call them in the United States, and they do a great job. There are several chapters in major cities. Uh, there is another organization that you might not have heard of called the PhD Project, started in 1995 by KPMG in the United States, which has, as I remember, contributed more accounting professors in the United States than any other organization, fully funded, 
minority professors. So it started out, I think, to begin with, with African-American, then spread to all people of color. And they have done excellent work over decades at beginning to populate business schools with accounting professors, but not just accounting professors, professors of business of all types. There are many PhD project candidates, and they've been doing a great job. But having said all that, it's still not enough. There are no quick solutions, as you hinted, but what questions should accounting firm leaders be asking themselves to at least acknowledge that there may be an issue here? Talk, as we're doing here. The first step is dialogue. Look around you and be honest. Do we have an issue? Do we have a problem? If you look around your workplace and really don't see any real difference, if you're not seeing black accountants, if you're not seeing um, women accountants, if you're not seeing those from working class backgrounds of difference, then we've got an issue, particularly, again, with my uh, particular area. It, it can mean that if you're actually a, a black accountant making your way through and you're the only one in the company or one of two, what that says, and we call this an environmental microaggression, it says without anybody saying anything, nobody's being nasty to you, nobody's really talking to you in that way, you don't belong. You don't belong because you don't see yourself there. And if you witness that as a dominant majority white accountant, white male accountant, for example, ask yourself the question, I should be very clear here, you know, in many ways, we often couch this in racialized terms, them and us. I want to be very clear about something. No matter what strife we have had in um, the issue in terms of the emancipation of slavery, whether we're talking about civil rights, whether we're talking about some of the racialized progress made in the United Kingdom with Toxfeth riots, all along, each time, every time, there have been white allies there each step of the way, fighting, defending, challenging. And whether it's the Black British community or the African-American community, we recognize this. So in many ways, I actually call on those who want to think about this, to think about it in terms of allyship, in terms of wanting to do the right thing within your profession. It's all too easy to think to ourselves, we can do nothing you can do something. It can be a nod, it can be a talk. And the other side of this is, who are these accountants serving? In the business community, entrepreneurs, the business owners, the clients of accounting firms, are they equally misrepresented or underrepresented? Because if there were lots of black business owners, they would be pushing the agenda for more black business advisors to look after them. And again, you raise an excellent point, Rob. If we had more black CEOs across the board, they would push for this and there would be a reason for many of the larger mid-tier accounting firms to populate their audit teams, for example, with much more difference, for want of a better word. And so one can argue that some of that is changing. For example, now accounting is very much a global concern. And if you've got a firm in India, you maybe should have some difference within your teams doing assurance work there or, or whatever. But there is a problem because that is an argument that's been used to date as the business case for diversity, as they call it. And that's usually this idea that there is the sensible business logic around doing this. There is a problem with that. And the problem was witnessed in the Trump presidency, where uh, an edict came from um, President Trump that uh, white privilege, implicit bias, critical race theory was seen to be anti-American, divisive, harmful, teaching predominantly white Americans to hate themselves and hate their country. And he effectively banned all teachings of white privilege, implicit bias, uh, trainings, uh, uh, critical race theory trainings from 
any contractors looking to engage in federal work. And this was the tone that was set just at the end of his presidency. And had he won, this would have continued. And the important thing here, Rob, is to highlight at that point, if you're trying, if you're an accounting firm looking to get a federal contract for doing some kind of governmental accounting, then the business case is to actually reject diversity training, reject critical race theory, reject um, implicit bias training. So it has to be more than that. Even if it hurts your firm, even if it hurts um, to engage in this, as we mentioned earlier about pain, we must do it anyway because it's the right thing to do and we want to be on the right side of history for want of a better word. Amen to that. It's a fascinating topic and I'm, I'm really looking forward to having you back and finding out how you became a qualified pastry chef and, and lots of other things. <laughs> uh, but tell us real quickly about your podcast, Counting Black and White Beans. Thank you very much, Rob. Yes. Uh, in my podcast, Counting Black and White Beans, which can be found on Spotify if you do a bit of a search on there, um, I talk about this stuff. If you're prepared to listen to me warble on some more, I go into the nitty gritty of things like um, why we don't have enough black partners in our uh, accountancy firms. What is white privilege? We've used that term. We haven't really actually examined what it is. Uh, what are microaggressions? We, we hear about these terms. And what are they in relation to our accounting profession? And I continue to ask many of the questions that you have correctly brought up. And the idea behind this is to foster a dialogue. We talk about these things without really understanding what we're talking about. And I want to engage in dialogue because I truly believe if we are going to rectify any of this in any meaningful way, Rob, we have to do it together. This has been terrific, Anton. If people would like to have a conversation with you, find out more about the great stuff that you're doing and sharing, what's a good way for them to reach you? Um, a good way is to uh, reach out on LinkedIn under Dr. Anton Lewis. I'm, I'm lurking around there. I'm also on Facebook. Uh, if you type uh, my name under Dr. Anton Lewis as well, uh, you can find me lurking around on Instagram and on Twitter. I'm, I'm usually around if you Google my name with um, racism and accounting, you'll find me. I'm there. My articles are there. Or you can, of course, contact me uh, directly. I work at Valparaiso University, Indiana. If you're burning with an issue to talk to me, anton.lewis at valpo.edu is a more direct way of contacting me. I'm more than happy to talk to anybody and everybody about this sort of thing. Great. It's been wonderful having you on. And leave us, Anton, for the last 60 seconds or so with a call to arms for the accounting profession to put its house in order and right some wrongs. What would you say? Let's do the right thing. We know what we see every day when we go into work. I started this venture because as a young accountant going through my journey in the north of England, I, I worked in many differing firms. I asked myself the simple question, why am I the only one here? I shouldn't be. Why is that? And why is it so difficult for me to progress? That was what put me on the path to doing this doctoral research, to writing papers and going down this path. It's not fair. And I know our profession can be better than that. And I know the accountants within that want to do and be better. And we can do it, but we can only do it together. So let's do it together. That's so thought-provoking. It's been such a privilege to have you as a guest today, and we look forward to the next interview. Thank you so much for your time and your insights today. Thank you very much, Rob. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you. And in 
Mislinks, here's what works. We are deep diving on this idea of professional development, having that self-development work ethic that accounting practitioners and those that serve them want to be better today than they were yesterday. And it begs the question, Martin, what works when choosing a consultant or a coach or a trainer for an accountant or an accounting firm? Where do you want to start with this? I will start with the previous episodes. A couple of episodes ago, guys, I think in the Saturday bonus episode, we were talking about the snobbery, historical snobbery, that is, of the accounting profession, who, when they win 95% of their referrals, believe that that's the same as winning new business proactively. Therefore, they believe that they're a very good salesperson because they always win the new work and therefore don't require any support. And what they fail to see or fail to discern is the difference. The difference between having somebody come in the door and saying, I'd like to work with you, please, and having to go out and speak to a business owner about the possibility of them breaking the loyalty barrier to their existing accountant in order to come and work with you. So to put that in everyday life, that's the difference between the uh, man or woman of your dreams coming in and saying, you're delicious, when can we go out together? Comparative to you going out to the man or woman of your dreams and saying, you know that uh, other half you're with, I'm better for you than they are. You see the difference. There's a significant difference. So because of that, the practitioners don't always recognize that there is a need. And of course, they have a natural aversion to sales and marketing in the first place. And we had to invent a new word so that it wouldn't sound like sales. It's called business development. What does that mean? It means sales. So on that basis, if you are an open-minded practice that says, you know what, technically we're strong in this firm, but we don't have the skill set we need to proactively win work. We don't have the skill set we need to proactively educate our clients through marketing. We don't have the onboarding processes, the pricing strategies, the proposal formats. We don't have these things and we need some support. Even internally, Martin, we don't have the skills we need to manage and lead our people to attract new talent to the firm, to, to tell stories about what we're doing in a compelling way. We might not even have a sales pipeline. So on that basis, there are some practices, and hopefully yours is one of them, that comes to the re realization of this and goes, okay, we need some ex external support. Now that's great, but here's where it goes wrong. Because you guys are new to all this, you go out and look for external support, and my experience shows me that you tend to pick the ones who are the loudest on social media. First of all, ask yourself this, why have they got all the time to be on social media? Number one. Number two, we then find the blind lead the blind, quite frankly. So on that basis, you practitioners who don't know what it is you're supposed to be doing, get told what you're supposed to be doing by somebody who's never done it and also doesn't know what they're supposed to be doing. But guess what? They wrote a book on the subject so that it looks like they know what they're doing. But theory and practice are different words for a reason. Here's what works, guys. I want to give you a five-point plan right now for how to sift the wheat from the chaff or the experts from the garbage in appointing a coach, consultant, or mentor. And just to tee this up, Martin, to set the scene, we've got either an accounting individual that wants to find a coach, mentor for themselves, probably self-funded to raise their game, enhance their career prospects, win more business, or more preferably, the firm is paying for this and the firm said, go and find the coach or the firm themselves are looking to appoint an external coach, mentor, consultant to help their people, whether that be coming in and doing some training, taking small groups or taking a few well-chosen people for one-to-one -one work. That's what we're talking about here now. It is indeed. You're absolutely right. So here's your five-point plan, guys. Are you ready? Here we go. At number one, 
is track record. It beats everything. You will find people with large social media followings. It means nothing. You will find people with books. That means nothing, sadly, either. What you need is to find the people who have done what you're trying to achieve in other firms, a lot like yours, over and over and over and over again. So it's not a fluke. They didn't do it once. And then they've dined out on that story forever. There's a track record. And I recommend a five-year track record. I'm sat here with a 25-year track record, but five-year mint, okay? If they haven't done it for five years, they're still fairly new to this. And yes, that does make them more expensive. You're quite right, but you get what you pay for typically. So that's the first thing, a track record. Secondly, you're looking for a niche specialism, which means that they've got to have grown accounting firms. If you find an expert that has grown a legal firm, that might work for your practice in accounting, but not necessarily given that legal have a much greater need to win new business than accounting firms do because they don't have the same level of recurring business. Therefore, the tactics may well be more aggressive. The consulting uh, advice may well be far more acute, shall we say. And as a result, you're not ready for it. So not that it doesn't work, it's just not the right fit for you. So niche specialism, look for somebody, if you're an accountant, who is specialized in accounting. Next one, number three, go even further in your drill down and look for someone with a track record and who works in accounting, who has got the track record in similar size firms to your own. So if you are a million revenue, how many other million revenue firms have they helped? Why is that important, Martin? It's important because the way in which a sole practitioner can win work their ability to resource that work, the range of services they can offer, the pricing that they can legitimately maintain is very different to that of a multi-million pound firm. And therefore, tactics are different, pipelines different, sales process is different, proposal uh, is different. There's a lot of the methodologies that change according to the size of firm that you are and the size of market that you're marketing to, as well as size of prospects. Once you've got your track record and your niche specialism, now size of firm. A similar size of firm. You don't need similar geography. You don't need similar age group, but you do need similar size of firm. And if you're looking to say, break a barrier, like a 1 million pound barrier and become a million pound firm, ask yourself, how many firms has this expert helped break that million pound barrier? Okay, have they done it? We want to break 2 million pounds after that. Have they done that too? Can we stick with them for longer so they can break us through two? So look for that. I might be jumping the gun a bit, Martin, as well, but would you look for the level of person in the firm? For instance, I've done business development programs for big firms and we ran a cohort of partners and a cohort of those below partner level because they had smaller networks, less senior networks, less experience, less confidence in the below partner level network. And you need a certain expertise in helping those people win business that will do it in a different way to what a senior partner might do. That's very true. And therefore, that depends on size of firm. So you might not necessarily look for that if you don't, for example, have a second string in the, in the firm. The fourth out of five, though, that you should look for, do they make the simple complex or do they make the complex simple? I like that. So, for example, you might get a, I don't know, a marketing expert. Let's go with a marketing expert. And they might start trying to talk to you in their language and talk to you about how the nuances of funnels and clicks and shares and likes and uh, cross-platform posting and... Uh, Logarithms of LinkedIn and Facebook ads and all of that stuff. That's right. And make them disappear up their own backsides with stats. I'm reminded of the quote by Jack Welsh, uh, ex-head of GE, Martin, that said, any idiot can make something more complex. 
Yes, quite right. And we have a lot of idiots in the guru space. So you look, but from a practitioner's point of view, guys, you look for someone who takes an area of unfamiliarity for you and simplifies it. And think about this from your client's point of view. When you talk to your clients about tax, you don't talk to your clients at your level of understanding about tax, do you? You simplify it so that they get it because we don't understand tax as clients. So what you do is you make it simple for us to understand. And that's what the great expert consultant coach should also do. They should not start talking to you in jargon, just like an accountant shouldn't talk to a client in jargon. They should simplify. So look out for those who make the complex simple because they understand it at a high level, but can articulate it at a basic level. And that leaves me with number five. Now, guys, if you get all the other four wrong, get this one right. Look for the consultant coach mentor who can demonstrate a return on investment that you make in them and a payback period. So if you're going to spend arbitrary figure 10 grand with them, they should, by giving you case studies or stories of their previous work, they should be able to show you how that 10 grand will come back to you in new appointments, new business, cross-selling referrals, whatever it happens to be, and the timetable by which you should see this 10 grand come back. They should be able to show you conversion ratios from new appointments. They should be able to show you inquiry ratios from marketing, whatever their area of specialism in. If it's pricing, they should be able to show you the uplift that they've created in the average fees of the clients they've already worked with. If they cannot demonstrate ROI and payback period for that ROI, red flag, right there, red flag. You will find that most of the coaches, consultants, and mentors that you speak to cannot fulfill that five-point criteria because they haven't done it. And they are theorists who know what the book says, but have never actually proven it to work in reality. So ultimately, you want five out of five. I'll let you off with four out of five. Don't go with anything that's three out of five or lower. And that's what works. That's really good, Martin. And a final thought. We're talking about business development, bringing in new work. So there is a tangible return on investment there. If we're talking about a coach for leadership skills or mental resilience or something else, there's a little bit softer, if you like, management training, things like that. How do you go about tracking who is good and who isn't in those areas? Our ROI still exists. So if we go leadership, for example, then we say, okay, here are three potential leaders that we want to be partner material or department head material or whatever it happens to be. And you do a lot of future leader stuff, don't you, in your consulting? Yeah, yeah, I do, yeah. So they know what they would pay one of those departmental heads or partners. They know what that would cost. They know what that would cost to pay. They know what that would cost to recruit. They know what that costs to replace. So straight away, if you or the consultant, coach, mentor person is demonstrably able to develop the team into leadership material, head of departments, manager of departments, partner designate, junior partner, whatever you think is your goal, then straight away you know that you do not have to spend money on recruitment to find that person. You don't have to spend money on top wax salary to entice them away from where they currently are. And you do not have to risk any sort of client capacity vulnerability if you lose that person from the, uh, the team. So straight away, you know that if you pay the consultant 10 grand, and I'm using 10 grand as an arbitrary figure here in these examples, and they bring you a partner, uh, a would-be partner to your table, that maybe has sold, saved you as much as 100 grand in recruitment and uh, incentives straight away. So there's a 10 times return on investment straight away. So even with something like leadership, you can still qualify it. And that is what works for accounting practitioners in choosing a consultant coach mentor to take you and your accounting practice forward. You're listening to the Accounting Influencers Podcast, cutting through the crap to bring you the very best interviews, insights, and wisdom. 
from the planet's most influential people in the accounting and fintech world. With Rob Brown and Martin Bissett. And a big shout out to one of our newest commercial partners here on the podcast, it's Practice Ignition. Martin, how would you explain what those guys do? Businesses such as accounting and bookkeeping firms use Practice Ignition to one, help them grow, two, be more efficient, and three, create win-win client relationships. There are nearly 5,000 accounting and professional services firms around the world who use Practice Ignition, and they do so to win new business with impressive digital proposals, they engage clients with a clear scope of work, and get paid on time by automating payment collection. PI integrates with the leading business apps such as Gusto, QuickBooks, Xero, Zapier, and it does so to automate time-consuming tasks. That means less admin and more time for clients, Rob. We've got a special offer from our PI partners. Use the code AIR21 to receive 25% off all plans for your first six months. But that's 25% off with the code AIR21. And the link is info.ignitionapp.com forward slash AIP for accounting influencers. Practice Ignition, it's time to ignite your practice. Welcome to our expert interview today, and I'm thrilled to have with me today the delightful Christine Nicholson. Good day to you. Hi, Rob. Great to have you with us, Christine. For people that haven't come across you, briefly tell us about where you're coming from in this accounting fintech space. So I am a qualified accountant, and the first thing I did when I qualified was I immediately got out of accounting dodge. Um, qualifying as an accountant opened lots of doors for me, and now I'd like to think that I could be the accountant's great friend um, because I can bring to the table a lot of things in terms of engagement with the client that typical accounting practices struggle, especially smaller practices uh, struggle with. And I specialize in exit and succession planning. So what would have to be happening in a, an accounting firm owner's mind for them to say, quick, let's get Christy Nicholson in here? Oh, this is a great one. So first of all, any owner-managed business where the owner is well into their 50s, or their 60s. If you've got those, you need to be having those exit conversations uh, because one way or another, 100% of business owners leave their business and sometimes it's just not the way they would like to. What kind of shape do you feel the accounting profession is in right now? I think they're in a, a state of flux. I think there are they're, they're, there's almost like three tiers. There's people who actually are completely nailed where they're going and how they can offer more value to their clients. And, that, and that's great. The, the good ones that are doing that are, are really offering great value to, to their potential clients. Then there's a whole load in the middle who talk about this value added stuff, but I don't think they really understand how they can do it or do it effectively. And then, of course, there's the old guard of mm, I'm just going to stick with compliance and that's going to get me through. Um, so I really see those three levels and, and, and I see a lot more in that middle. I know I've got to change. I just don't know how to do it. Yeah, and you allude to the aging workforce, the younger ones are coming through, they're looking for different lifestyles, different things from their job. So what in your view can accounting practices firms do to serve these almost two different markets? In one way, I think there's a, there's a, there's a double whammy here, because uh, accountants can, to, to make themselves attractive to the next generation of accountants that are coming in, they have got to get a grip with the fact that accounting is more than compliance. So providing new trainees with that experience uh, and an understanding and allowing them to get to know customers and, and their clients and what their clients want, and then providing them with the support to deliver that support to potential clients. Um, so, so bringing in new blood, which all, all accounting practices are struggling with at the moment, by making accounting attractive is one way. But of course, that 
in the other side of things really serves their clients because if they're training their new employees, not just to become what I call compliance accountants, but actually gain the business experience and actually gain an understanding of what their clients want, then you've automatically got a practice that's more equipped. The problem with accountants is, and, and I know this is a sweeping generalization, but because they want to be seen as helping the clients by knowing everything, that actually fails the client. By asking the client what their challenges are, you're going to serve the client better. I know it sounds counterintuitive, but it's so true. No, it's the theme that comes through, Martin Bissett and I have addressed that. You don't need to have all the answers, just a lot of the right questions, and that will lead you to the right answers. But you, it's okay saying, let's make accounting more attractive as a profession. But accounting firms' practices themselves need to build up their own employer brand to say, okay, accounting's good, come to our firm and not the firm down the road. So how do they do that? One of the things is having a modern approach to their practice. You know, if you're stuck in the compliance loop, which for me is like being in room 101, um, anybody who doesn't know what room 101 is, go and read 1984 by George Orwell. It's, it's a personal kind of hell. So it, but if you're stuck in that compliance loop, the new accountants coming through know that there is more to accounting than compliance. And they're genuinely, from my experience, genuinely interested in being more business focused as opposed to compliance focused. Compliance has its place, but it's part of a suite of services. And actually, it's much more interesting to understand the nuts and bolts of how a business works. Because um, let's face it, businesses are all around human beings. Uh, human beings create complexity. And the job of the accountant is to create order out of people's chaos. They should be the experts on how to run an effective business. You kind of have to get your own house in order first. You're speaking to succession though too, because when you bring new talent in, you have to show them a vibrant career path that they're going to be engaged with where they're not chained to a desk for 10 to 15 years. So they not just want to stay and work with you, but they want to take over and take on leadership responsibilities and replace you ultimately, particularly if you do want to sell. Absolutely. And I think one of the challenges for accounting practices is get this getting and keeping customers. So you, you fight really hard to get the customer and then you've got to keep the customer. And it's the same with staff. You've got to fight really hard to get the staff and then you put them through training and then you, you, you've got to keep them. Well, one of the easiest ways to do that in terms of showing the way forward is to have a culture in your practice where everybody, every employee could be a potential rainmaker for you. Every employee could be either seeing the opportunities for you to add value to your clients or actually making those opportunities. So there'll be some of your staff in any accounting practice that you would not put in front of a customer in a million years. And that's fine, because if they're the kind of analytical, detail-focused people, what they'll do is they'll see the opportunities that they then, you need to just create an, a culture where they can say, hey, payroll person, for example, I've noticed that over the last four or five months, this client has been regularly taking on staff, and the trend is that they've doubled their headcount in the last 12 months. Now, that's an interesting conversation to proactively go to that client with. You wouldn't necessarily want to send your payroll person in, but you would want to send someone else in to say, I see you're growing. Right? So the first thing is you're actually saying to someone, I see you. I, all clients want is, I mean, literally they are screaming, please make me feel special. And any accountant that picks up the phone to the client and says, 
I've seen that you've doubled your headcount in the last 12 to 18 months. They are saying, you're so special, I've seen you. We notice you. And I love your mantra that business development is everyone's job because everyone in a firm can open up a conversation, can ask a question, can say something nice to a client or even a colleague and notice something. And that's what this is about. I get that. What about the firms that ignore succession? They ignore this kind of planning in advance. What happens to them? Oh, you're seeing it already. I've had multiple conversations with people who are saying, and this is just so heartbreaking. I've been in business 25 years and I'm spending the next three years winding my practice down. Like, why would you spend 25 years building it? Like, you wouldn't build your house and then say, yeah, I don't want to live here anymore. I'll just take it down brick by brick. Ah. <laughs> in terms of the, the change in landscape, COVID is giving us a VUCA world. You've come across this term, Christine, that volatility, that uncertainty, that complexity, ambiguity. Clients are looking for something different from accountants. They're looking at different ways to engage accounting services. Talk to us about the journey they're going on and what they're looking for in an accountant. The one thing that I noticed in COVID was that there, there was a distinct two sides of accountings. There was a number that put on their out of office and just disappeared, like my staff are on furlough. And then, of course, there was the other ones that were in working their tails off to support their clients. And I think it's those that are willing to accept that, you know, they've got their own vulnerabilities, their own uncertainties. And everything that goes on in your practice is actually a reflection of what plenty of other businesses and business owners are experiencing. Actually, all you really need to do is have some empathy. And you don't need to look too far. You don't need to look too deeply for other people's problems. You're experiencing them in your practice yourself. And as you said, accountants don't have to have the answers. They just need to ask the really good questions. And one of the things I can guarantee is in your accounting practice, if you ask a client a question and you don't know the answer, and you actually don't know what to do with their answer, I'm pretty sure you know someone who does. You know someone in your network that can help you. I get that. And accountants and empathy don't normally go together in the same sentence. But it doesn't take much to take an interest. And we've seen accountants in these challenging times, not just be that trusted advisor or financial, maybe CFO, but they've become consultants, therapists, psychiatrists, counselors, friends, talking about the awkward stuff, haven't they? The the life stuff. And that takes a different skill set. Yeah, I think that we are now in the age where the accountant can be the trusted advisor and actually being seen as the first place to go, not just compliance, but actually, I've got a problem. I don't know where to find the answer. I don't, and clients will, may even say, I don't even know whether you have the answer. But if I just say this out loud, if I ask this question out loud, maybe I'm not even asking the right question. So uh, and accountants can really fill that space. They're ideally placed. You're absolutely right. And, and they have amazing networks. I mean, the one thing I know about practice accountants is they have the deepest networks, but they don't necessarily make those networks work for them. In terms of the awkward conversations, the emotional conversations that have to be made commercially, you often talk about the four Ds, don't you? Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah. So with succession and exit planning, uh, I often hear, oh, but I'm never leaving my business. And sadly, well over 50% of all business owners actually have these four Ds and they'll have one of them, possibly even more. Uh, Obviously, the most extreme is death, but more likely to happen is disease, disability and divorce. 
You don't plan for them to happen to you. They just happen. And it's how prepared you are to deal with these things. Or, I mean, obviously, if you're dead, you, you don't care. But then the mess that you left behind, that your family now have to cope with the loss of a loved one, the loss of their income, and a business that they might be ill-equipped to manage or even take forward. So the more prepared you are for those four things, then the more prepared you are for a voluntary exit, um, no matter what form that might take. But being prepared adds value. So you can add value absolutely today because tomorrow one of those four things might happen to you and you can do something about it today. How can accountants help their own clients with things like this without a whole load of training and hard work and psychiatric therapy coaching courses and things like that? So the first thing is, and it's the one thing that you can do today that will immediately add value, not only to your practice, but it will add revenue to your practice straight away. And that is do a filter on all of your clients and literally filter them by, by age where the business owner is still working in the business. It's that is your primary contact. Maybe between 20 and 40% of every practice will have business owners who are still working in their businesses, who are over the age of 50 or 60, who have no succession plan whatsoever. And it's a really, it's a one sentence conversation. I'm not being rude, but I observe your age. What are you doing to protect the value of your business that you fought really hard to build? Ask that one question, guaranteed it will make a change to your practice. And do you find that business clients of accountants are thinking that they'll live forever and they don't like to bring up stuff like this and it is actually the accountant's job to bring it up in the conversation? Absolutely. Everybody thinks they're immortal. And, and of course, we all are right up until we aren't. You know, nobody wants to face the fact that something negative might happen to them. And, and then, then the sad thing with business owners, and I, I you know, I, have, I am one myself, but I have been one employing hundreds of people. We all think that we're completely bulletproof. <laughs> it's kind of part of the entrepreneur psyche. Well, I'm 57 this year. I had a stroke six years ago that was very unexpected and swipes you sideways. I'm blessed still to be in the game, but I've got some after effects of that. And as a non-drinker, non-smoker, fairly healthy guy, you'd expect me to live forever. And I've always said to my kids that I'll live till I'm 100 because my death certificate has an expiry date. And I joke with them on that, but I always thought that would. But things like that, they do knock you backwards and they do help you recalibrate your life and make tough decisions. But you want really to be making those decisions before that kind of stuff happens to you. The one thing that always brings in conversations for me is when I talk to people who phoned me potentially quite out of the blue, I, you know, I won't know them from Adam and they've suddenly discovered me. And I always say, what's triggered this conversation? And I can honestly say nine times out of 10, this is a person who's in their 40s or their 50s who's recently lost a friend of a similar age or recently lost a family member well before they were expecting to, because you're looking in the mirror of your own mortality then. I mean, I, I wasn't aware of your situation. I mean, your, your bounce back it, it is extraordinary because most people don't. That's another show in itself. Tell us, when you work with accountants, do you help and your area of expertise with uh, exit planning and succession planning, do you help the accounting firms themselves to sell, Christine, or do you help the clients of accounting firms? I'm very lucky that I do both. So I have a client at the moment who is a practicing accountant. It's not the first one that, I, that I've had, and it helps them prepare 
because certainly with accounting practices, we've got a partnership model as opposed to a limited company model. It's, it's a little bit different, but uh, actually helping them get their own mindset and preparation in place has helped them identify clients that they can work with and then where they get to the limits of their capacity to help. Because sometimes it's a, it's a volume thing. You know, some clients need a lot more help and support. But a, but a, a lot of the work I do, certainly from a mentoring perspective, the, the, the biggest journey is the seven inches between your ears. Actually starting to think about succession planning and exit planning when you, you've got the attitude of, no, I've built this and I'm never going to leave. If there's a slight mindset shift that you've got to get around. So one of the things I do know is that for the people who actually get themselves through that seven inches, which is really tough, when they come out the other end, they always say the same thing. I wish I'd done this earlier. So you can help an accountant generate more fees for their firm, can't you? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I always say, if I work with a practice of accountants, I refer your client back to you for more money. Uh, whilst I'm an accountant, I have no interest in being in practice at all. But I really like for accounting practices as a whole to have more engagement with their clients. And if I can help increase that engagement, that would be great because the benefit is for the client and also for the practice. And presumably in today's international world, you can work with accounting firms and their clients anywhere. Uh, I'm SEMA qualified. So uh, one of the things I always said with pride is I've never done audit. I, I've managed audits from within a client, but I've never done an audit. So I can't do that work. And, and I don't do tax. I mean, paying my tax accountant is the best money I spend <laughs> personally. So, so I don't compete with it, with accountants at all, um, which means that because I don't deal with those compliance issues and those tax issues, the mechanics of business is the, pretty much the same worldwide. And, and I have been very lucky. I've had clients in the Far East. I've had clients all the way across the States in the past. And just for our international audience, SEMA, the Chartered Institute of Management Accountants, tend to go less into practice and more into industry and businesses as in-house accountants, don't they, Christine? Um, uh, absolutely. And I was very lucky that all my training was done with an American company, actually, based in, in the UK. But And I did actually part of my training in Russia. I was in St. Petersburg for a year of my, my training, but it was all in industry. So and a great experience because I really got to see the good, the bad and the ugly of, of business. So uh, we'll put your contact details in the show notes, Christine, so people can reach out to you. And uh, when they do reach out to you, what does that initial conversation look like? How do you start things off? Well, if you're an accountant in practice and you just want to understand a bit more about how you can engage better with your clients, then the conversation can literally start with, what do I need to do to get better engagement with those clients who should be looking at some form of exit in succession planning? Which actually, when you think about it, is every single client you've got. Words of advice to accountants listening that want to serve their clients better. Maybe even a word of advice to accountants that are getting on a little bit, they're aging, they're looking to sell themselves. And maybe not just yet, but they're starting to become unsettled. They're seeing that day is coming up over the next five, 10 years. And I'm sure you want to be telling them that they should be planning now. What advice would you say to both those groups? So given that 100% of business owners, regardless of what your business is, leave their business in one way or another, the best way to add value and to do some value adding exercise today is to actually start thinking about how your business could run without you. And the biggest challenge is owner reliance. So even if you only start thinking, what would my business look, look like if I was retired and, and I still owned it? still owning my business. I'm just not in it on a day-to-day -day basis. What would need to happen and what would that look like? 
And just the thinking process actually gets you started down a, a particular particular path. Yeah, that definitely works for the accounting firm owners. And they need to be getting themselves and their staff to have that exit succession plan conversation with their own clients, don't they? Again, this, the second thing I would always say to every accounting practice owner is every member of your staff, and I mean every member, I mean the mailman, the janitor, I don't care who it is, everybody in your organization can be creating revenue generating opportunities within your business because they will all see your clients and they will see your practice in a very different way to the way that you do so have an open forum where people can actually say i've noticed this what can we do about it brilliant christian nicholson that's been terrific thanks so much for your time and your insights today pleasure thank you this is the accounting influencers podcast with rob brown and martin Bissett. So there we have it. You've been listening to the Accounting Influencer Podcast. And on this Monday show, you get all of the segments. You get the Here's What Works. You get our two interviews and you get the news. And remember, the Monday show is CPE accredited. You can go to earmarkcpe.com and get your certificate, get your points, get your accreditation. Martin, what have they been listening to this week? When it comes to the news item, you know, we, we looked, we, guys, we, we look at a lot of news items before we choose which ones we're going to bring to you. And, and because of when these shows are recorded, uh, against when you hear them, then you might think, well, guys, some of that news is kind of a few weeks old now. Why are you bringing us that? You know, and the reason is because it has impact beyond the story date. So the story date will be whatever, February, um, but this has an impact. It reverberates, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, throughout, throughout the year. And you're going to forget that story if I don't tell you that it has an impact on you forever. So here's a situation. We've got a, a merger here in the US that's created a 1.4 billion, yeah, billion with a B, billion dollar firm. And that has an impact to your practice in many different ways because you're used to having fintech using massive resources to speak to your clients and market to your clients. Now you've got accounting firms doing the same thing that are outside the top four. And as such, we've got to take in the implications. And you might think, ah, oh, it won't affect me for years. And maybe you're right. But guess what? Accountants have been saying that for years. Uh, and that's an excuse for doing nothing. So in this, what I want you to take from that news item that we reported on there is think about not just this particular merger, but what's going on in your area. You know, what are your competition doing? Are they just staying the same forever like you are? Are they trying to grow like you are? Are they looking for strategic acquisition to make them bigger than you are? You know, are they coming after your clients like you're coming after their clients? What's going on? Because I find generally that practitioners exist in their own little silos, don't look up very often, don't know what's going on around them. And you need to. To be commercially aware, you have to. And so this was simply... um, and sort of an avatar or an end sign of what the bigger picture is in your area. Yeah, we don't just report the news. We tell you the implications for you in your everyday accounting role. And speaking of accountants, Martin, stale, male, pale, does that sum up the accounting profession? It sums up me. I know I'm the accounting profession. <laughs> uh, but yes, you're quite right. We, we have been tarred with that brush for quite some time of the pale, male and stale. Yes. Yeah, and you and me, yeah, you're, we're in that bracket. But Anton Lewis is not, and he represents... In his academic role, the thoughts of those who are not. And in that fascinating interview with him, we talked about accountants in diverse roles and black accountants in accounting, how underrepresented they are, how little voice they have. We looked at critical race theory, we looked at microaggressions and all these things going on that the modern day sensitive, in tune, woke accountant, dare I say, needs to be mindful of. And if you're in a leadership role, that diversity, equity, inclusion agenda is becoming more and more important right now. You need to be on point. You need to be on message. You need to be politically correct. 
There are many dissenting voices, many provocative thoughts on this topic. And Dr. Anton Lewis, he displayed a few of them. There's a lot to consider there, Martin, isn't there? You know what? When I was touring around the US uh, for many years, I noticed that black-owned accounting firms had to advertise and market themselves as such. And it, it just seemed tragic to me. I thought, you know, why can't just being good be enough? But it's not enough for them. They have to do that because there are black-owned businesses looking for black-owned accountants because, and this is the tragedy, they don't feel well looked after at white-owned accountants. It's ridiculous that it should be like that now, but nevertheless it is. So I noticed that, that there were firms marketing themselves specifically as black-owned accounting firms because that meant something to black-owned accounting businesses. And in, and it, you know, in my little perfect world, it shouldn't matter. It should just be a great accounting firm regardless. But no, it's still required. They still need to designate themselves in that way because there is conscious or unconscious bias against them. So I was delighted that we, we have this, this section, delighted that we have Anton Lewis with us for it as well, because I don't think this subject is a one-off. I think we're going to be hearing about it quite a bit going forward. Yeah, and I'm looking forward to part two with Dr. Anton Lewis to hear more about this and what the implications are for us as firms. And just to finish off that point, Martin, people should be good enough I'm thinking of the situation we had at Countex a few years ago where you and I chaired a panel that was all male and we got crucified for it insofar as there were no females on the panel. But you and me, we didn't think about gender or race or anything else. We just thought about who was good enough for that particular topic. And uh, that raised a few conversations, didn't it? And our, and our very first choice for a member of that panel was a top, top level female expert who didn't want to do it. So we ended up with all males, not necessarily by choice, but by default. But nevertheless, it mattered. It mattered if they were male or female. It mattered what colour they were. It mattered. And people weren't looking at, are these people experts? Do these people add value? If I go and listen to this panel, are they going to bring me things that I couldn't get elsewhere? Is it better than other panels? Uh, and of course, that is the, the great challenge, meritocracy versus diversity. Um, it's a discussion for another day. But yeah, you know, for, for me, if you're good enough, nothing else matters. If you've got track record, nothing else matters. It doesn't matter what size you are, race you are, orientation you are. It doesn't matter. If you're good enough, you're in. Um, there's no discrimination uh, whatsoever. But unfortunately, not everyone sees it like that. I'm just thinking now as we just wrap up with what we talked about with Here's What Works, and we'll talk about the interview we did with Christine. There's a great quote by Eric Hoffer, Martin. And we're thinking about accountants choosing, electing to get coached now. And Eric Hoffer says, the mark of an educated person is the degree to which they are willing to let go of old ideas and embrace new ideas. And we can talk about CPD, CP, and keeping up with technical qualifications for accountants as long as we like, but there's a lot they need to keep on learning to stay ahead of the game and stay relevant. Yeah, very much so. And I think, I'm hoping this is a lesser case as we get the next generation come through. As the next generation of professionals come through, we don't have the same kinds of, I hope we don't have the same kind of boundaries. I hope we have much more accepting, much less bias. Um, and in simply that you make it to the top in accounting if you're good, doesn't matter anything else. As long as you're good, you're there. Nothing else should have to matter. And you should certainly not be excluded for any other reason either. And finally, I had a great interview with Christine Nicholson. She's been on the show before. Wonderful mentor and coach and consultant to accounting firms and the clients thereof. And I asked her about the aging clients of accounting firms and the aging accountants themselves and what happens as they come to the end of their career and make important decisions about exiting and getting succession plans in place. We talked about why it matters and the cost of ignoring it, both for the accounting practice and for the clients. And we also 
talked about why accountants are ideally placed to engage their clients on exit and succession planning as an additional service. And, and finally, talking about those four Ds, death, disease, disability, and divorce. I've had a stroke. I've got epilepsy. Martin, you had a scare with COVID last year. We don't know what's coming up, do we? So we need to plan for this stuff. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And Christine's 4D structure is very interesting. You know, I think she has recently won is it a Mentor of the Year award, if I'm not mistaken. That's right, yeah. Very recently. So we listen closely to what Christine's got to say to us. But that 4D structure uh, is fascinating. However, Rob, we should also look at what works, you know, in this wrap-up. Yes, talk to us about that, Matt. <laughs> in the Here's What Works section, we looked Well, at- I thought we had done when we looked at the, uh, the coaching of accountants and the quote by Eric Hoffer, but uh, let's wrap it up properly. Yeah, so, so ultimately, for accounting firms who are perhaps thinking commercially for the first time, you know, beyond what the recurring fees are going to be this year, who are really taking brand seriously, marketing seriously, business development and pipeline seriously, uh, growth seriously, profitability and pricing seriously, then you need outside help. You can't do it by yourself. You need outside help. The challenge is what equals good and bad outside help. So we set out this five-point plan for you in this section so that you'd be able to measure up anyone who tries to get your business against the five-point plan and see what they score. Is it a three or four or five, or is it worse than that? And ultimately, guys, you should be looking to hire only those who score four and five on that rating. Anything below that, maybe they will be good enough for you in the future, but they're not good enough right now. Yeah, it was genius. And uh, so thank you for listening, tuning in. We'd love to get to know you. So you can join, follow us, subscribe, like, share, engage with the accounting influencers communities. Uh, we've got our podcast site. We've got LinkedIn. You can search for accounting influencers. We've got a YouTube channel now. We're on Twitter at AC Influencers ACC. We've also got a Facebook group. Come and say hello. We'd love to know who you are and tell us what you think of the show. And feel free to leave a review, uh, a recommendation of, of five stars or share it with your friends. Thank you for joining in. We'll see you on next week's show. This is the Accounting Influencers Podcast with Rob Brown and Martin Bissett.